Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Coronavirus infection. COVID-19 is here to teach us that we need to produce a more egalitarian society. We need economic and social safety nets. We need the right kind of social spending that helps the most vulnerable. We will survive this crisis, but if we don't learn from it, we will have many more future opportunities that are likely to have even worse impacts. That's Dr. Stephen Bezruchka, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Dr. Stephen Bezruchka on the coronavirus pandemic. The coronavirus pandemic has sent waves of fear across the globe. It is a dangerous moment. We are benumbed by the dizzying statistics of new cases and the number of deaths popping up all over the world. What is it? It's a novel virus named for the crown-like spikes that protrude from its surface. It can infect both animals and people and can cause various illnesses and can be fatal. How contagious is it? Very. The top government infectious disease expert says, we're at a critical point now. The worst is ahead for us. It's no time for happy talk. The deeper systemic societal health and economic problems go unscrutinized. When the crisis subsides, maybe we can examine those issues. Our guest today is Stephen Bezruchka. He's senior lecturer in the Department of Global Health at the University of Washington. Dr. Bezruchka worked for many years as an emergency physician in Seattle. He spoke from his home in Seattle in mid-March. And now, Dr. Stephen Bezruchka. Someone said to me a long time ago that every illness is there to teach you something. If you don't figure out what it is and learn from it, you'll get many more opportunities to get educated. My focus will be on what the coronavirus outbreak needs to teach us. If we don't learn soon, there'll be many more opportunities which may present lessons that we don't want to embrace. Today, the coronavirus outbreak around the world takes the headlines and main stories in every media outlet there is. We have an infodemic of bad news. E.O. Wilson, the famous entomologist at Harvard, someone who studies insects, said, we're drowning in information but lacking in wisdom. I hope to give you some wisdom. Well, what is certain is that poorer people will have worse infections and be more likely to die. We know that poorer people have poorer functioning lungs. Studies around the world have shown that richer people have healthier lungs, independent of whether they smoke or live in polluted areas. This relationship, poorer people doing more poorly, is called the social gradient in health. It is there for most health conditions. We ignore it at our peril. I will continue to highlight that concept as it is the most important fact to know about our health. Notice the collective phrase. We ignore it at our peril. The words we and our peril, not 
I ignore it at my peril. We are more likely to become infected if we have more poor people, especially those who have no paid sick leave or other benefits, so they have to go to work if they're going to pay their bills. A large fraction of Americans are one paycheck away from eviction. Almost three-quarters of American adults making $35,000 or less a year would have great difficulties meeting an unexpected $1,000 expense. Because we don't have social or economic safety nets in this country the way other rich nations do, for that reason alone, we are more likely to get infected. While those more poor are more vulnerable, even those of us more well-off are at risk. In my years of trying to understand how different populations achieve different levels of health, I've had to understand history in broad swaths since our origins as a species. I'll begin there and bring us up to the present to understand what the coronavirus has to teach us. Humans have been around in essentially modern form for a few hundred thousand years. For most of that time, we lived in primitive societies as hunter-gatherers or forager-hunters or cave-dwellers or whatever term you prefer. From all we know about this period, we didn't gather in groups of more than a hundred or so. We lived in pristine environments and moved around to where food was plentiful. Most of our diet was plant-based, as women gathered nuts and berries for a few hours a day and men went off for a hunt every few weeks. That led to a great deal of time for socializing. We've become adept at telling stories and mythologizing. Marshall Salins, author of Stone Age Economics, pointed out that hunter-gatherers were the original leisure time society. He also noted, quote, The world's most primitive people have few possessions, but they are not poor. Poverty is not a certain small amount of goods, nor is it a relation between means and ends. Above all, it is re a relation between people. Poverty is a social status. As such, it is an invention of civilization. It has grown with civilization as an invidious distinction between classes. End of quote. Hunter-gatherers had sufficient food, reasonable shelter, and some security. Profound changes occurred in human society with the advent of agriculture. Diets changed profoundly. Typically, one waited until a cereal crop was harvested, and then it ate that until the next crop of something else became available. Occasional meat was consumed. There were large regional variations. Diets became monotonous, that is, you ate the same thing over and over again as that was what, what was available. You spiced it up if you had spices, which were then as precious as gold or diamonds are today. Remember the spice wars. Agriculture required much more labor than the gathering of foods and hunting. To achieve this, women became producers of the labor force as fertility increased. That is, women bore more children and became subservient to men. By contrast, hunter-gatherers were gender egalitarian. Then, men and women worked together. 
Such societies were often matriarchies. By bearing more children in agricultural societies, women were more likely to die in childbirth. What was striking was the discovery that our health declined with the so-called progress of agriculture. Deaths became more common, whether in childbirth or from dietary deficiencies through lack of variety of foods consumed or from infectious diseases. As we live close to domestic animals in more crowded conditions, viruses, bacteria, and parasites jumped from the cows, pigs, and fowl onto humans and became adapted to live on or within us. Most of the infectious diseases that plague us today have come to us from domestic animals and the wild creatures we live in close proximity to, facilitated by crowding. Tuberculosis came from bovines, smallpox from rats, luckily a disease now eradicated, a great success story, influenza from swine and avian sources. Our feared coronavirus likely began in bats in Wuhan, China, where they were kept alive in markets because some people wanted to buy live meat and then kill it. The bats in Wuhan live in various cave dwellings, producing melting pots, making mixing of viral strains easy. You don't have to live near these bats to become infected as they're sold in live markets, which is a common spillover event there. We have had a number of viral-borne outbreaks, uh, similarly, including SARS in 2000. And two, and Ebola in 2014. Expect that there will be many more coronavirus outbreaks in the future through this process. Hunter gatherers were egalitarian and shared scarce resources such as meat from hunting. If someone got a smaller portion of meat, it would be the hunter, since he had skills to get more. With agriculture, a hierarchy emerged. One man could say, I'm your lord or master. You must build me a castle in which to store the food you grow for me. You must go to war to defend me and my stored resources. While hunter-gatherer bands had occasional skirmishes with neighboring groups, often in regards to jealousy over women, real wars only came about with the transition to agriculture. The transition then from the Paleolithic to the Neolithic or from hunter-gatherer societies to agricultural ones resulted in a decline in human health. I was shocked when I learned this about 20 years ago, but the evidence is solid. Lives became shorter as mortality increased because we had more infectious diseases and there was less caring and sharing among us as inequality increased. Famines became common as crops failed. One way to measure our health decline is that our height decline. Measuring long bones in human skeletons and dating them showed that their lengths shortened with the progress of agriculture. As human populations increased in numbers and required resources from the natural environment to, de- to sustain them, deforestation began. As we cut down forests for fuel, lumber, and fodder, we destroyed the habitat for many wild animals, forcing them to live closer to us in our farms and cities. 
Bats would roost in trees and backyards. You now know uh, how we've destroyed natural habits all over the planet. Ebola outbreaks in Central and West Africa are more likely to occur where there has been recent deforestation. Mosquitoes carrying malaria are twice as common in deforested areas as in intact forests. That is the first lesson COVID-19 has to teach us. We must reforest. Wild species are facing extinction, as has been well documented. Remaining animals will come into repeated human contact to plague us as the bats where our current infections began. Lesson number one, stop destroying natural habitat and begin reparations to nature. Why has this happened, namely destroying our natural habitat and allowing coronavirus to spread? Well, consider our economic system. Capitalism is based on the pursuit of profit, which naturally leads to many forms of exploitation, including that of the natural environment. To get to that, let's look at economic inequality, which is another illness we must learn from. Economic inequality goes in cycles. The gap between the rich and the rest of us is extreme today and a marker of something seriously wrong. Oxfam, in its annual report before the Davos meetings, where the richest and most powerful on the planet met in January, said that last year the world's billionaires, only 2,153 people, had more wealth between them than the bottom 4.6 billion people on the planet. While this inequity is being discussed more than in the past, there's little effort to decrease it. There are various ways of decreasing economic inequality. Recall the biblical four horsemen of the apocalypse. One man rides a white horse, representing conquest. The next, a red horse, indicative of war. Famine is portrayed by the black horse, and plague is the pale horse. A global pandemic of an infectious disease is a historically proven way to level the economic peaks and valleys around the globe. When the Black Death or the plague swept through centuries ago, many people died. There weren't enough people remaining to do the work required in agriculture or in building huge cathedrals. The survivors had to be paid more or since this was mostly before wage work, they needed better conditions and sustenance. Economic historians studying real wages of urban unskilled workers in Europe and the Levant from the 1300s to the late 1700s showed plague-related rises in wages and then drops afterwards. What else can decrease the huge gap between the rich and the poor around the world besides a record pandemic caused by coronavirus. Consider the economic impacts of this infection. The stock market today is incredibly volatile. Is this a result of the virus or something more fundamental? Economic up and downturns are an enduring feature of capitalism. They're built into the fundamental process. The last crisis of capitalism was back in 2008 and 9 with the global banking disaster. Predicting the next upheaval in the markets is a common news story. 
Not whether, but when. Such recessions typically cycle every five to ten years. We are overdue for a big financial crisis. Given the instability of capitalism, coronavirus may just be the perturbation required to create volatility. Hence, we need to rethink capitalism. Bernie Sanders calls himself a socialist. Socialism is a tough concept to describe in today's economic arena. Let me try. The diverse, complex concept called socialism came into being as an alternative to capitalism, mostly in 19th century Europe, where there was rampant exploitation. Dichotomies such as slave-master, serf-lord, subject-king, and employee-employer led to protest that framed socialism. There was no single concept that socialism represented. Main elements were that there be minimal domination of one individual or social group over another, and that all humans should have access to economic resources, knowledge, and political power. Karl Marx is an intimate part of socialist discourse. That capitalism exploits surplus value in society is now widely understood. It became clear to me in the 1970s when I worked for a company based in San Francisco, started by an entrepreneur doctor that garnered 30 contracts to staff emergency departments and hospitals around California. As an emergency physician working in Los Baños, I was paid $16 an hour, while the hospital paid the company $50 an hour. With 30 contracts throughout the state, for every hour the company netted over $1,000 an hour. These profits led the owner of the startup to buy a bank in San Francisco after the year I worked for him. The surplus value of my labor enabled one person to reinvest the proceeds by buying a bank. Banks, of course, create money. I was a worker, and he was a capitalist. Another form of exploiting the value is exploiting the value of the natural environment. Many of us know about economic externalities, namely the factors that are not considered in market transactions. If you deforest and create an environment facilitating the transmission of viruses as described above, when you sell that tree, the cost of dealing with the resulting coronavirus pandemic, which in today's situation will be trillions of dollars, is not one of the costs of doing business. Of course, that tree was cut down before we knew about the threat. But we've known about deforestation being a major risk that results in global warming. But it is convenient to not consider this factor on deciding on a price for wood products, because that might cut into profits. There are huge externalities in pretty well all market transactions that we ignore at our peril. doesn't have to be that way. Some European car manufacturers include the price of recycling the purchased car after it is no longer drivable. Many industries pollute very heavily. One way to address this is to have increased taxes on such industries. But if anything, our current government has seriously cut taxes on industries whether they pollute or not. 
However, a pollution tax would stimulate such industries to adopt cleaner production. If we're going to have a market-based economy, then the price of a product needs to factor in these negative externalities. I may seem as if I'm straying from coronavirus, but capitalism is the promoter of this epidemic. I want to expose the weakness of capitalism in the United States. Let's begin to see this by considering the capabilities of dealing with the infectious epidemic in America. Recall what happened in China. While officials denied the seriousness for a period after the outbreak, they then quickly quarantined large parts of the country, making transmission of the virus more difficult. The number of new cases there have peaked and are successfully declining. Our response has been more haphazard. First, there was denial from the White House and little or no evidence of any leadership. At the same time, the media began a frenzy fanning our fears. Instilling fear is a great way to control people. The Roman emperor, Lucius Asius Maximum, was odorant dumb metutant, let them hate so long as they fear. Rather than have a national policy, as in other countries, it has been left to states, cities, companies, schools, and other crowd-gathering situations to decide what to do. I won't go over details today, as there will be much more in the news every day. What is clear is that there is serious economic disruption. With the 2009 crisis, the banks were bailed out by the federal government who said the banks were too big to fail. The total value of the bailouts globally was in the trillions of dollars. Meanwhile, many ordinary folk lost their homes. Capitalism used socialism for the rich to get over the crisis. Many of the rest of us are still suffering the effects, but not the rich and powerful. Assuming that there will be many people infected with the virus in the United States, let's see how capitalism and inequality will respond. We will need health care services for those who come down with this scourge. We spend more on medical care than the rest of the world combined. In the U.S., the costs of health care worked out to be over $11,000 per person in 2018. Medical care represents a sixth of our total economy. Yet some 30 million people lack access to medical insurance and have to pay out of pocket. Even some of those with insurance have large co-pays, making it unlikely they will seek medical care when it's necessary or delay doing so. Testing people to determine if they're infected with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, is required to direct the response. South Korea, which has had many infected people, has testing rates of 3,000 per million people there at a time that we had tested only 5 per million. The initial tests rolled out here were not accurate. And it's likely that testing people at low cost is just not profitable for the companies involved. Another reason for not testing is that our president didn't want us to look bad. 
Other countries in this situation have produced many testing kits. But because of American exceptionalism, namely we are the superpower, we've refused offers of test kits from Germany or the United Nations. Also, there isn't a sense of solidarity required to produce enough kits for necessary tests, especially if the process is not profitable. Our system of health care delivery is profit care. The industry has been very lucrative. Costs for anything here, be it drugs or procedures or hospitalization or tests and investigations, are the highest in the world by a huge margin. There is talk of competition in a capitalist system driving down costs. Mostly that's a joke. In a capitalist system, when there is high demand for a product, then you can raise the price for higher profits, or you could increase production and keep the price from rising. Given our current coronavirus situation, with the huge demand for masks, hand sanitizers, and many other products, which are mostly made overseas, there is little chance of increasing our supply of them. With hand sanitizers no longer in the shelves, here we see price gouging. A number of states have laws preventing this kind of rapaciousness. Washington, my state, is not one of them. But the Attorney General has said they will investigate price gouging. Don't hold your breath. The same tactic happens in natural disasters and other calamities. Prices go up. Those most vulnerable can't pay. Let's address why the United States is so unprepared for this situation. To begin with, we have dismantled the factors that produce health in a society. Health seems like a nebulous individual concept. The World Health Organization defines health as a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease. For a country or society, it is more relevant to look at who is alive and who is dead. As an emergency physician, the easiest diagnosis for me to make in the ER was that someone was dead. It's hard to fake. Early on, looking at population health, I decided that mortality measures were the best indicators of a country's health. All the rich countries record when someone is born and when they die. You can then easily calculate mortality rates in childhood, in adolescence, adulthood, and old age, and also from specific conditions such as childbirth-related causes. And then consider average length of life or life expectancy. Hopefully it is no surprise to you that we die younger and have worse health than those in all the other rich nations as well as in a number of poorer ones. I coined the phrase Health Olympics a couple of decades ago. In the 1950s, we could boast of being in the top five countries or even number one on various indicators such as deaths of women in childbirth. That was back in the 1950s. For life expectancy in 1995, we ranked 24th. But in 2018, using the same UN country data source, we've dropped to 36th behind a number of much poorer countries. If you don't believe me, go to our Central Intelligence Agency's World Rankings website, where we stand even worse as they count tiny populations such as Monaco 
that the UN doesn't. If we eradicated our leading killer heart disease, we still wouldn't be the longest lived country. That makes us dead first among many nations. Because our health is not so good to begin with, we are more vulnerable to the effects of the virus. The question I hope you are asking is why are we not so healthy? The usual suspects aren't the reason. Not our diet, nor smoking, nor the lack of exercise. Yes, they matter, just not so much. The longest-lived country, Japan, has more than twice as many men smoking per capita as we do. For some reason, smoking harms men less in Japan than here. The same is true in other countries. Namely, the country in which you live matters for your health more than your personal behaviors. What matters? To begin with, early life lasts a lifetime. Namely, about half of our health as adults is programmed in the first thousand days after conception. As you go from the erection to the resurrection, the early period is, is what needs to be protected to be healthy. How is that done? You're listening to Dr. Stephen Bezruchka on the coronavirus pandemic. This is Independent Alternative Radio. If you'd like a free copy of this program, Stephen Bezruchka, the coronavirus pandemic, just give us a call at one 800 444 Email us, info at alternativeradio.org. Again, that number is one 800 444-1977 and our email is info at alternativeradio.org For more information you can go on our website alternativeradio.org That's alternativeradio.org Raising a child is hard work as you parents know. It is more difficult to do if you don't have the time or money to do it well. Remember, the U.S. is one of two countries worldwide that doesn't have a nationally mandated paid parental leave program. That is, if you're a working pregnant woman, you aren't entitled to time off with pay as a national policy. The only other country in this situation globally is Papua New Guinea, half of a big island north of Australia. All other countries give you time that varies, maybe 12 weeks or two or more years with pay to get on the right foot with your infant or your child. Daycare is free or heavily subsidized in many other countries. Former student of mine moved to Montreal, Canada with a baby. Childcare in Quebec costs $8 a day there. An important principle in understanding health as I said, is that poorer people have poorer health. It's a wake-up call if you haven't heard it before. Countries with a great deal of poverty will have worse health for that reason alone. We have the highest rates of poverty of all rich countries, and especially of child poverty. While it depends on the poverty measure, we can say with assurance that at least a quarter of U.S. children grow up in poverty. Yet the U.S. is the richest and most powerful country in world history. Another factor strongly linked with health is economic inequality. 
more unequal nations impose stress and frustration on their people. Many studies link income inequality to various health outcomes, including mortality measures and various social outcomes. These include mass shootings, something we've come to expect daily headlines about. Counties with high income inequality and with large wealth present there can expect more mass shootings than more equal counties. Given our record income inequality, which I won't detail as you're all aware of, good health cannot be expected. I know what you're thinking. I have white skin, college education, I exercise, and I don't engage in bad behaviors and see my doctors regularly. So those admonitions don't apply to me. They do apply to you. That is one of the most challenging ideas to get my students to understand. If it were not true, then surely some of the longest-lived people in the world would reside here. The oldest old at any one point in time is almost always in Japan, not here. Let's talk about why a social safety net is critical. A country's government collects taxes and has those resources to spend on what is decided upon. Our government accrues about 30% of our economy through taxation and delegates those funds to various expenditures. The percentage varies among nations. In Sweden, it is about 55%. Ours is the lowest among rich countries. A substantial portion of government revenue is spent on the military. We can question whether this is a good idea. I know it won't help us fight the novel coronavirus epidemic. Ludicrous to even consider that. Our military won't protect us. So consider social spending. Governments spend this in ways that are supposed to benefit people. Some studies suggest that we spend as much on social spending as the other rich countries. Let's explore a paper published March 5th in the New England Journal of Medicine, a leading medical publication that is titled Social Spending to Improve Population Health. Does the United States spend as wisely as other countries? To gain wisdom, I critically evaluate articles in academic journals that are peer-reviewed. That means that several experts read over and evaluate each submission. The editor, based on these reviews, decides whether to publish the paper or not. While this system is not perfect, it is better than most of the alternative facts or fake news out there. I've been teaching about the impact of social spending on health care for over a decade. Many studies point out that social spending matters more for health than spending on medical care. The authors point out that we have worse health than many other countries, something I've talked about and in many other talks broadcast on alternative radio. Where does our social spending go? Mostly on old folk for pensions and residential services for the elderly. We don't spend much for families via child allowances, maternity and parental leave, early childhood education, and payments to sick parents who are usually very financially strapped. We spend little on sickness payments, disability benefits, and rehabilitation services. Similarly for unemployment compensation and housing assistance. 
All the research points out that spending on the early years is much more effective in producing health than spending in old age. As Frederick Douglass, the escaped slave and abolitionist, pointed out 150 years ago, it's easier to build strong children than repair broken men. But we have a huge industry repairing broken men and women that we don't want to tamper with. If we had the average, not the best level of social spending of the other rich nations, we would be one of the world's healthiest countries. Social spending is an investment in health, while medical care spending treats what results when we don't have good social spending. Recently, attention has been paid to so-called deaths of despair in the United States. This refers to deaths in adulthood, specifically in ages 45 to 54, where mortality for whites has not been declining as in other rich nations, nor as among African Americans. These people, in their prime of life, are less likely to have gone to college which didn't used to matter as much when they were youngsters. You could achieve the American dream working on an assembly line. Now you despair, blame yourself, and die from suicides, alcohol consumption, and opioids. We consume more than half the world's opioids as we try to self-medicate this despair. Those who are of Latin origin, I now use the term Latinx, since it is gender neutral, Latinx have better health than non-Latinx whites. Although they tend to be poorer than their counterpart, they have more social support within their culture. Social support among families and within them is a substitute for government social spending. But even that has its limits. So the realities in the United States are that we have less social support than before. We have so many people unable to pay an unexpected expense or be off work for any length of time. We brought this upon ourselves collectively as we didn't protest tax cuts for the wealthy. The initial costs of the 2017 tax cut legislation were estimated to be one and a half trillion dollars, but are now likely to cost four to five five times that And this is before the current outbreak. Economic inequality has also made our society more fragmented than ever before and much less trusting. Now we're incredibly vulnerable to COVID-19. Let's take Italy as an example, a country that has more coronavirus infections and more deaths than we have. To begin with, they have universal health care, namely everyone can access medical care without having to pay out of pocket. By contrast, many in this country, even with Obamacare, find it a huge cost for copay or the full price if they're not covered by insurance. These are, of course, poorer folk, the ones more likely to get infected with corona and also not be able to take time off work as they have no sick leave benefits. They can't absorb the cost of being out of work. They will work at the supermarket in the checkout stand when sick or will be flipping burgers in the fast food joint when you go there. Or they'll be serving you in the restaurant. Recall, the minimum wage for tip workers is $2.13 per hour. 
They try to be nice to us as they prepare and serve our food. But when you are sick, this is harder and more likely to result in a lower tip. Go figure. Now many restaurants are closing, so these workers will be out of a job. There is good unemployment insurance as well as generous paid sick leave in Italy, as well as 26 days of paid vacation, in addition to national paid holidays, which number 11 per year. Then there's the Italian government's new policy, which is a large support package to help businesses who've lost income and to have families affected by the and to help families affected by the coronavirus. European countries are providing tax breaks and extending deadlines for tax payments and other important measures. In France, the government announced that for families who can't find childcare because of the epidemic, they can stay home with children who must be quarantined and still receive full pay. Where's the money going to come for, to pay for all this on a continent already hit with austerity? Countries say they will take on increased debt. That's what you do in a crisis. Spend money or lose your life. What can we learn from China where COVID-19 started? One astute doctor, Li Wenliang, at Wuhan Central Hospital in Hubei, noticed something un unusual for a few very sick patients in later December 2019. He tried to call attention to the situation, but he was rehabilitated. He later died from the infection and became a martyred hero there. Attempts were made to influence Xi Jinping, China's president, on January 7th. He demurred, and the outbreak was only announced two weeks later. Then large parts of China were quarantined, and it is fair to say that the outbreak there peaked, and now numbers of new cases are declining. There, the virus has been somewhat contained. Had actions been taken sooner, the situation would be better today. The branch of the federal government charged with protecting our health, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, also known as the CDC, have faced huge budget cuts in the current administration. The parent, Department of Health and Human Services, has similarly become impotent. What can I say at this point as someone living near where most of the deaths in the U.S. have occurred at this point? First, there is no need to panic. We tolerate a great number of unnecessary deaths in this country. As an example, had our life expectancy been increasing at the rate it was before 2014, when it started to decline, we would have averted about 100,000 deaths last year, which is about 273 deaths a day. Of course, we don't know about those statistics. They've uh, not been broadcast widely. Based on what is known in China, young people seem less likely to get the infection. Those most vulnerable are older folk and those with compromised immunity. A general policy today would be to avoid crowds in confined spaces. That's why I'm teaching using online technology. We had a class a few days ago with almost 100 students that went very well. 
We have no evidence that wearing a mask prevents infection. If you have an infection and are coughing and sneezing, then wearing a mask makes sense. We can learn about infections from our history. 120 years ago, tuberculosis was a leading cause of death in this country. In 1900, it is estimated that 194 out of every 100,000 Americans died from TB, or about two-tenths of one percent. There were no drugs to treat it and no vaccine. Starting in 1900, death rates from TB dropped precipitously. Why? States opened sanatoriums where those with the disease could be housed in sylvan surroundings and given good food. When these were opened in Minnesota, death rates plummeted. In the late 1940s, when antibiotic treatment was available, 80% of the drop in deaths to the present had already occurred. This was using a form of quarantine, namely isolating those infected and taking good care of them so they wouldn't pass the condition on to others. This was a good example of useful social spending. Powerful drugs to treat TB, it is still with us, and present mostly in the poorer segments of society. There have been over 500 deaths from TB here last year and almost 10,000 cases. It's still a leading killer elsewhere, as TB is thought to infect a quarter of the world's population and cause over 10 million deaths a year. The United States controlled TB with social spending. The same is true for immunizations or vaccinations. Take measles, which is now easily preventable with an immunization, although cases are resurging here as there are anti-vaxxers who don't get the vaccine. If we look at England, where deaths from measles in children have been recorded going back to 1850, the same picture is seen with TB. Large numbers of deaths occurred until around 1900, and then they dropped precipitously. By the time the immunization was available in 1968, there were almost no deaths from measles in England. The reason relates to social spending. As people's standard of living improved, they had the National Health Service and social welfare policies there provided housing and jobs. I'm not advising you to avoid the MMR vaccine. Measles cases are now resurging here. Something else to consider is how vulnerable our country has become as we've outsourced production through globalization. Almost nothing we possess is now made in America. That includes the medicines produced by Big Pharma, our very profitable pharmaceutical companies. Although these companies package drugs that are then sold at high cost in pharmacies across the country, the ingredients, if not the actual pills themselves, are produced overseas, mostly in India and, you guessed it, China. Before the coronavirus arrived, there was substantial concern that because of our deteriorating trade relations with that country, China could weaponize its drug sales to us and increase our vulnerability. One expert suggested if China shut the door on experts of medicine and their key ingredients and raw material to the U.S., our hospitals and clinics would cease to function in a few months, if not days. 
What is clear is that while corporations are making astronomical profits by outsourcing production and labor to poor countries, many of which have totalitarian governments such as China, it leaves us on unsteady ground. China is an especial favorite for corporate investors because we know their repressive government will ensure production quotas. Or will they now? What is required to to sustain the current form of globalization is a level of cooperation among nations that is fast disappearing. Just as we are ever more focused on individual pursuits in America, so do other nations not want to be our poodles. Recall Prime Minister Tony Blair in the U.S. who was called George W. Bush's poodle for supporting our invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. This is another aspect of the increasing inequality worldwide, as Oxfam has shown. The same is true in the United States, namely increasing inequality is driving cooperation apart as we retreat into our political tribes. These are tough times. Yogi Berra is supposed to have said that making predictions is difficult, especially about the future. What can we expect? Expect coronaviruses to appear across the country. Those most vulnerable will be older folk with chronic diseases and compromised immunity. The mortality rate will be difficult to assess without making tests more widespread as there appear to be many asymptomatic infections. That is, people have uh, the virus but don't show any signs of it. Current models suggest there may be 200,000 to uh, almost 2 million deaths. Hospitalization may be required for perhaps 10% of those infected. But we have a substantial shortage of hospital beds especially in comparison to other rich nations. In the worst-case scenario, expect death rates of those infected of perhaps 0.1 to 2%. Treatments for those infected will not be based on clinical trials for a considerable period of time. Expect ad hoc treatments with a a variety of antiviral drugs. Even a push to create a vaccine will take a year if it's successful. Note that we don't have an immunization against HIV AIDS nor malaria, and that's for not the not for the lack of trying. Our health care system, our non system of health care, it is a non system, will be severely stressed. We aren't training the number of health care workers we need at the competence necessary. I've been having discussions with doctors practicing today that worries me. They become super specialized. Hardly any doctor in urban settings that treats outpatients cares for them directly when hospitalized. This is now delegated to hospitalists, a new breed that works only inside the hospital. There are also nocturnists who work nights, proceduralists who carry out what regular doctors used to do in the hospital. Nurses now start most intravenous lines. Doctors don't do enough of these procedures to maintain their skills. 
I used to walk doctors and medical students in training to do minor surgery and placing chest tubes or do an awake endotracheal intubation or doing a spinal tap in the emergency department. This doesn't happen anymore. The profit care system of delivering medical care will also be stressed as those who are sickest won't be able to pay for their care. Such a shock is an opportunity to move to a system of health care for all. Naomi Klein wrote Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism in 2007. There's no reason why we can't use the coronavirus shock to make progressive changes. John Kingdon of the University of Michigan in his landmark book, Agendas, Alternative, and Public Policies, noted that for a dysfunctional social system to change in this country, it was not enough to have a problem that attacks popular and political attention, nor to have major players agree on a refined and feasible solution. In the United States, there needed to be a transforming political event, such as a war, a natural disaster, or guess what, the coronavirus pandemic, to push through required changes. This doesn't have to be new. Franklin Delano Roosevelt proposed an economic bill of rights in 1944. This would have guaranteed employment, food, housing, and leisure with enough income to support them. Alas, it died before it could become reality. To reflect on where we stand now, The coronavirus epidemic has resulted from global greed to increase profits in the capitalist system through deforestation that provided the opportunity for the virus to be transmitted to humans. The lack of global cooperation has made it difficult to muster the required defenses which would require caring and sharing made impossible by our great economic inequality. We are especially vulnerable in the United States. The way forward is through organization. We have to work together. COVID-19 will change our political debates and challenge democracy in this country. The perspective we must take through the electoral process is to understand why we have come to this crisis. The reasons go back to various forms of exploitation. To counter this, we must organize or die. Coronavirus infection, COVID-19, is here to teach us that we need to produce a more egalitarian society. We need economic and social safety nets. We need the right kind of social spending that helps the most vulnerable. We will survive this crisis, but if we don't learn from it, we will have many more future opportunities that are likely to have even worse impacts. Thank you. That was Dr. Stephen Bezruchka on the coronavirus pandemic. He spoke from his home in Seattle in mid-March. Dr. Bezruchka is senior lecturer in the Department of Global Health at the University of Washington. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 34th year. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.com.
alternativeradio.org. Again, our website, alternativeradio.org. If you'd like a free copy of today's program, Stephen Bezruchka, The Coronavirus Pandemic, just call us at 1-800-444-1977 or email us info at alternativeradio.org. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977 or email info at alternativeradio.org. Our website is alternativeradio.org. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. Listening to CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting in Calgary, Alberta, on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, home to the people of the Treaty 7 region and the Metis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary, Alberta. Located on Treaty 7 territory and home to Métis Nation Region 3. 